Our New Testament reading this is one we've read the last two Sundays, or last two messages. I guess there was a Old Testament sermon in between. That is Second Corinthians chapter five, verse sixteen through Second Corinthians six, verse thirteen. So we want to read it again because it's one piece and he's building on what he said earlier. And so we'll begin reading at verse 16 of Second Corinthians chapter 5. Now remember last week, if you were with us, Paul assured them in verse 3 that he puts no obstacle in anyone's way, no, not in the way of the gospel itself or in the Christian life, not in his ministry of reconciliation, not in his fulfillment of the Great Commission. Rather than putting obstacles in people's way, he says in verse 4, he endeavors to commend himself as a servant of God. Now, we need to realize who we are before the world in Christ. People really do see us, and everyone who calls himself a Christian, even falsely, see us as representatives of God, as ambassadors for God, and that's what we are. Christ and God's ambassadors to the world to to bring them to knowledge of our Lord, our King, the only Lord, the only King, Jesus Christ. Uh, And he calls us ambassadors back in chapter 5, verse 20, which we'll be reading in a minute. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Now, some think here he's speaking only of the apostles and only of pastors, but we've looked at that many times. And I'd remind you of what we've considered concerning this matter. Remember that during the Exodus, just before God gave the people the Ten Commandments, just before they made the golden calf and worshipped it as Yahweh, God said through Moses in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all nations. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter says much the same thing to the believers today. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, First Peter 2, 8 and 9, or 9 and 10. God, both in Exodus and in First Peter, is telling the people they are as a nation, as a group, a priesthood to God and a holy kingdom. Or as Paul is putting it in our passage, they are ambassadors of Christ. That is a role model and representative of who Christ is. So let's read the text with that in mind. Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore to you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you. 
in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, genuine love and truthful speech, which are the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken to you freely, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. <coughs> you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage about how we as your servants must put no stumbling block in the way of people coming to you, coming to the gospel, or even of living a holy life. Lord, we look at the text today. Please open our hearts to receive that message that we might be transformed in our lives more and more into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 4, he starts out, or in verse, yeah, that he's not putting an obstacle in people's way, but rather he's trying to commend himself as God's servant. And he gives a list of thing, list of things that he is talking about in this context. He starts with by great endurance. You know, it doesn't one time and I've passed the test and I'm done and I graduate. No, the life of the Christian is a life of struggle against sin day by day. It's a life of new challenges, new adversities, new afflictions and hardships and calamities coming into our life. And in each one of these, we each time must demonstrate that endurance that we do not give up, we do not lose hope, we do not curse God and die as Job's wife told him to do, but rather we praise God to continue to try to serve him, to glorify him, to share the reason for the hope that is in us. He goes on to say, in afflictions, which Paul had many, in hardships, which he had many, in calamities he had. Remember, he was shipwrecked and adrift in the sea. What a terrible calamity to strike your life. He had many such problems in his life. He speaks of these in chapter 12 in more detail. It also mentions beatings, imprisonments, riots, those things the godless do to try and make him stop telling the gospel, stop sharing the gospel, and labors and sleepless nights and hunger because he was so impassioned about preaching the gospel and sharing the whole counsel of God to all the believers everywhere and to seek out men, share the gospel, the hope that God would transform their lives and their heart. He endured it. Strong labor, sleepless nights, and hunger, amongst many other things. Again, as I said, he speaks of all of these in more detail in chapter 12. He, he mentions these things in his letters from time to time, these adversities. And the book of Acts has accounts of some of these things happening to him. And it gives the details there. We won't go into it here, though. <clears throat> As I've been saying as we go through this section, chapter 6, the first 15 verses, and earlier in the letter, these adver adver 
adversities, these problems, could certainly have caused Paul to give up and stay home. Not to poke the sleeping bear of pragmatism so that it wakes up angry and attacks. Paul was called to preach the gospel. He wanted to and loved to preach the gospel. He loved to teach the converts how to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. He wanted to fulfill his job in the Great Commission. He wanted to do this and see their transformed lives in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit power and through the message that the Bible contains. And he even felt a compulsion to be true to his calling. He said to them in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For if I preach the gospel, there gives me no ground for boasting. You know, the success of the gospel wasn't even Paul's success. If the Holy Spirit did not work in them, then they would not be truly saved or converted. If they hadn't already had that heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in, if God's Spirit wasn't living in them, they would not be able to receive even the message Paul preached. And Paul understood that. He said, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. He goes on to say, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He was given a special calling of God. He did not volunteer. God came down to earth, changed his heart, said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And appointed Paul to go out and be persecuted for Christ's name. Paul says, you know, it's my calling in life. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, certainly, staying home would have been easier. If he stayed home, he wouldn't have endured the afflictions, the hardships, the calamities. If he stayed home, he wouldn't have been beaten in strange foreign cities. He wouldn't have corrupt government officials imprisoning him. There wouldn't have been riots. He wouldn't have labored his heart or had as many sleepless nights or had to go hungry in his travels and his imprisonments. Staying home would have been easier, but if he had stayed home, how would the people who were converted by him have heard the gospel? Yes, God could raise somebody else up, but that begs the question. If there's one who is to preach, doesn't go out and preach. The one who is to teach, doesn't go out and teach. The person who knows the gospel and has the opportunity to share the reason for the hope that is in them does not share, then the people do not hear. And that is a great and grievous stumbling stone, obstacle put in the way of them coming to Christ. Paul does not want to put any stumbling stone, any obstacle in anyone's way. And so he goes and he does what God has commanded him to do, just as we are to go and do what God has commanded us to do. Give a reason for the hope that is in us. Also, we've spoken of and often in this context, particularly in the last few weeks, Paul could have avoided many of these problems, many of these adversities, if he would just stop poking that sleeping bear. But he keeps doing it. If he would just have adjusted his message, if he would just not have preached the things people don't want to hear, if he had just been culturally acceptable, then he would have more people willing to follow him, and he would have fewer beatings, imprisonments, riots to deal with, fewer times he would be ostracized, less trash talk against him. The issues, the hot button issues of his day, the bear poking, so to speak, was speaking of the end of circumcision as the initiatory right to the old covenant, and the replacement of that at baptism as the initiatory right into the new covenant. We have our own hot button issues of this day. We can all think of them teaching of sexual immorality, of divorce, or of women's leadership in the church. They create the same things that circumcision and idolatry preaching in them caused in Paul's day. But when he came to a place that he saw God's people were being deceived and following wicked ways, he shared with them what God has to say on the subject. And ministers and teachers and even Christians, believers, should be doing the same today, sharing with love, honor, and respect 
the things that God has called that our society is turning from. Because if our society does not turn away from its sin, eventually God's wrath will come upon it. Many nations throughout history have been destroyed, lost, and forgotten due to their sins becoming so great that God brought them to justice as a nation. How shall anyone believe if they hear only a culturally adjusted description of Christ in his gospel? How shall they obey all that I have commanded you? That's the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. How shall they obey all that I have commanded you if they only hear the culturally acceptable parts of the Bible's message and they don't hear the parts they're disobeying about? This, no one calls them, as we read in Ezekiel. No one tells them and warns them, yes, they will die in their sin, but we are guilty of their blood for not telling them what we know of God. What a sad state of affairs. What a horrible place to be in. If they only hear those culturally accepted parts of the Bible, there's no hope for them to truly turn and truly repent and truly lead a godly life in Christ Jesus. Tampering with a message like that makes you nothing more than a peddler. We talked about that back in 2 Corinthians 2. And it places a huge obstacle, the obstacle of ignorance of the truth, in the way of the truth, the gospel, and the message of Christ. Now, I should have pointed out that these list of ways that Paul doesn't cause an obstacle, but rather commends himself or commends us in his ministry, are formed in a mini chiasm. Remember, a chiasm, key in Greek is the letter X, and a chiasm, you start with an idea, you have an idea, the same idea at the same level, and you drill down, and the center point is often the main point. Not always like that. In this case, there are only three ideas. The first one is Paul talking about our self-sacrifice. He comes back to self-sacrifice in verse 8, but here in verse 6 and 7, the core of the matter, the heart of the chiasm, the key of the chiasm, is how he commends himself with righteous living, with righteous life. Note he says, by purity. Nothing more hinders the message of the gospel than those public notorious sins of God's people. I remember one of the reasons for justifying my hatred of Christians when I was an atheist was in my teenage years, the uncovering and reporting for the first time of systematic sexual molestations committed by priests. And we learned as a teenager how even priests that had been caught having raped many children would just move to, would say, I repent. And they would be moved to a children's ministry in another city where they would do the same thing and rinse and repeat. And their public sins made me despise Christianity. I didn't know at the time that they weren't really Christians. But our purity is important because nothing really hinders that message of the gospel more than the sinful behavior of God's people. So purity is first. Knowledge is his second positive trait. If you don't know the Word of God, you don't understand the Word of God, how can you tell others about him and about his gospel, about what he requires? What Paul said to Timothy can be true for every Christian. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. The idea being, study the Word, be in the Word day, be in the Word at night, be in the church hearing the instruction, be in Sunday school, be in midweek service, so that you hear and you learn all of these things, and you know God well because you know His Word well, and you know how to give an answer for the hope that is in you. But we must do that with patience and kindness, he says here, and Peter says, with honor and respect. These scholastics that he is fighting against, and really all those who reject God's word, they, they work hard to provoke God's people. They want to push your buttons and make you get upset so they can say, ha, see, they're not behaving the way Christ behaved. 
we can't allow that to happen to ourselves. Paul wrote to Timothy, the young pastor, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the stare of the devil after being captured to do his will. Second Timothy two twenty four through twenty six. How do you convert? the godless person who is mocking and raging and teaching against Christ, especially in the church? Well, you do that with patience and kindness, not by ignoring them and letting them go on in their sin and lead people astray, but in correcting them gently with all patience and gentleness. And he says, with the Holy Spirit, Remember, we, we read about this before. Paul has been saying this all along, that the work of salvation and the work of the ministry and the work of our sanctification are all involving the Holy Spirit. We do this with the work of the Spirit, not ourselves. When men rely on themselves, when they figure, as we are taught in some of our uh, evangelism classes like evangelism explosion. You know, if you have the right technique and the right words and the right attitude, you can win many servants, many converts. And when we start taking that idea, what inevitably happens is we find out the things they hate, like a good salesman. You find out what they want and what they don't want, and you tailor the message to meet what they want and don't want, and you become, over time, nothing more than a peddler of God's word, dishonest in your teachings, and giving, again, an incomplete message. How do they know what they should repent of? How do they know what they should live? How do they know about the atoning work on the cross? Unless we are faithful to reveal the whole counsel of God. When we fail to tell them the things that make them upset, it's just like we read in Ezekiel 3. You know, if they're going to beat him and stone him and imprison him for telling them about their sin— he could easily leave out the parts that would be most offensive. But he said, God said, if they, you do that, and they, are, they don't repent, well, they won't repent because they don't know, and you will be responsible for their blood. They will die in their sin, yes. But you will be responsible for their blood. He goes on after talking about the Holy Spirit to say that in genuine love, what is love? I heard a great definition once. Love is wanting what is truly best for the other person. And certainly in a biblical perspective, that would mean salvation found in the gospel. That would mean having a right life before Christ. That would mean having nothing to be ashamed of on the day of judgment when all things are revealed. That would be having a reward in heaven. And how do people get those things? Only if they know to turn from their sin. And how do they know to turn from their sin? If everybody else in society is doing it and embracing it? Only by being told, hear the word of the Lord. And then saying the things that people will stone you for saying. That is genuine love. Other love that says, I love you, therefore I accept your sin, is giving them no hope of salvation, no hope of grace. It is not love, but it is doing the worst thing you could possibly do for them, denying them knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> and he adds with genuine, genuine love, of course, by truthful speech. The scholastics were peddlers of God's word. Sophistry was one of their tools Deceit, deception, we still see that today, even in the church. People say what works. They do what works. They rationalize little white lies. They rationalize undermining those who speak the whole counsel of God, thinking that just a little bending of the truth will help a lot and making my ministry popular and making my ministry successful. 
in keeping me out of harm's way. Paul says, no. He says, we do it all by the power of God. Paul never once thought that he himself was sufficient to accomplish these things. He understood that it was only through the power of God and the grace of God and the calling of God that he could do his ministry. That's the reality. That's, that's the trouble. That's the sorrow and the pain that he had because he knew God's power could do it. And what are the weapons he used? Righteousness for both the right hand and the left. There was no place for him to carry on sin. There was no place for him to lie or deceive or, or peddle the gospel. Righteousness in both hands. At this point in the chiasm, he comes back out to the, the other topic about the self-sacrificing nature of being a Christian. And there he talks about the things that are really hard for him to endure. Through honor and dishonor. And he would be honored by God for his hard work. Those who truly believed and who loved the word and desired the word and hungered and thirsted for the word in that dry and wretched land would honor the speaker, the pastor, the teacher, the one who brought the word to them, brought the light of the gospel to their wretched, dry, dusty, dark land. But those who did not love the gospel dishonored him at every turn. As we've been reading through here in 2 Corinthians, they were attacking and dishonoring him in every possible way. All the good that he did, they tried to dishonor. All that he suffered for the gospel's namesake, they tried to make a shame of. Though he would be honored by God and honored by those who love God, he was dishonored by the people. And it says, through slander and praise. Again, the praise is coming from those who know God or love God, have been converted especially by him, or have come to deeper understanding through him. The way we all feel when we listen to the godly message being expounded well, the word of God being explained in detail, and us being encouraged to follow it. That was for his praise. But his enemies turned it into slander. They said all kinds of evil against Paul. We see that hinted at throughout the book of Second Corinthians as he is once again defending the true gospel and the true ministry of the gospel from these godless scholastics. He says, we are treated as impostors and yet true. Surely the Jews and the Judaizers treated him as an impostor, a false teacher of God, and yet he was a true teacher of God. Indeed, Satan always tries to portray the truth as impostors, and the impostors as true. Paul says he was treated as an impostor, yet he is true. It's unknown and yet well-known. People did not know him, and yet they did not know the truth of him, but they knew that he was a leader in the Christian community in teaching the cause of Christ faithfully even though they did not know what that was. And dying, yet, behold, we live. Yes, at every turn he is dying and facing death, in prisons and beatings and floggings. He was stoned once and dragged outside the city as if he were dead. And yet he is alive. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's a great difference between happiness and joy, as we have spoken about in the past. We can be sorrowful, like when a loved one dies, but joyful, knowing that they are now with God in heaven and will never again suffer and have no more pain and no more misery and no more temptations. In the same way, Paul in his ministry, he was filled with sorrows at all the things that were happening to filled with sorrows at all the temptations and trials the church was undergoing, filled with sorrows that false teachers were going out and corrupting the word of God and deceiving people. 
And yet he had great joy in knowing the Lord and in seeing the blessings of the Lord, the success of the Lord's work, the joy of the gospel ministry was great, even though the persecutions and sorrows it brought was there. And so he again contrasts them, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich. All at one point was waiting for donations to catch up to him so he could continue his work because he had to work to earn his own living to feed himself and his team. And he made them rich, not rich in money, but true riches, rich to the gospel, rich in eternal life, rich in reward in heaven by knowing how they should live their life, by knowing right from wrong according to God and his word. Something that people hate to hear, but for the true person who is saved, the thing that brings them great happiness and great reward, riches in heaven. Having nothing, he says, yet possessing everything. Paul, in his life as a Jewish leader, being trained to be a teacher, rising faster than those around him, he would have had a school, he would have had wealth, he would have had people to take care of him. He would have had it all. And he has nothing. He wanders from town to town preaching the gospel. Different people travel with him at different times, helping him, yes, but he has no home, no place to lay his head. No possessions, no comforts, none of those things. Yet, he says, possessing everything. Why everything? Because he has eternal life. He has a place in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He has a place for all eternity. And that is everything we could ever want. Because we're only on this world for a short period of time. But eternity is coming. Eternity when we will have it all. We will have no need. And so you can say, even though I have nothing, I am poor, destitute, driven from town to town at times. I possess it all. Paul endured all of this in order that his testimony would not be stained. And we've all seen that person who is an idiot and a jerk who says very evil and stupid things and causes great trouble. And we all say, their message is not worth listening to. And even if they were to then go out and preach the gospel, we would look at their lives and say, but look at your life. Look at your behavior. Look at your words. Look at how you treat people. I remember reading, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, says, do not tell me what a minister is in the pulpit. Tell me rather what he is in his life. Because he understood, as what Paul is saying here, that all those things in our lives that are sin are hindrances to the spread of, of the gospel. Paul endured everything that he might not hinder the gospel message, that he might not hinder the calling of people to live that new life. That new life in Christ must be lived for God and in holiness. I want to call your attention now, though, to what Paul does not say and does not mention, because sometimes that's more important because we focus, we forget all that he said, and we make up things that he should have said, and we follow those. The first thing I would say is, notice he does not mention success in numbers. Well, certainly he had more converts than Jeremiah, who had none, or just about anyone else. Paul never boasted of the number of his converts. He never said, look at the greatness of my ministry, by how many are saved. Sometimes in this book, back, I think it's chapter 2, he says, or chapter, yeah, chapter 2, you know, look at what is written in your hearts. That is the message that says Paul's ministry is true, the conversion of your hearts. He calls them to look at that, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But he doesn't say, look at me, I have 10,000 converts. Aren't I the greatest in the kingdom? He doesn't say that. Paul never boasts of the number of converts, but he does boast, or rejoice, I should say, that the, minister, the gospel has been proclaimed to all creatures under heaven and that he is a minister of said gospel. He has been made a minister of that gospel. That's back in Colossians 1, verse 23. Paul also does not mention his fame, power, or prestige. He's quite like his master. 
Remember what Isaiah 53 said about Jesus? He grew up before He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. They speak of Paul along those lines when these adversaries, these scholastics who are trying to take over with their superior lives and their superior intellect offerings and their more desirable false gospel. They said of Paul, Jesus' disciple and Jesus' ambassador, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech accounts for nothing. Paul didn't use the fine arguments of rhetoric to trick people. He spoke of Christ Jesus, he spoke of the cross, foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. And they said his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. He doesn't speak of the power and prestige that the many men in false ministries today speak of. They boast of the number of people in their congregation. They boast of how many expensive cars and homes they have. They wear hand-tailored expensive suits to show their personal superiority. I like to think that is what the scholastics would do in Paul's day. Paul is not like them. Notice also, Paul doesn't mention health, wealth, and prosperity. That's one of the great false gospels of our day. But think first of his health. Can you imagine Paul's health? Was it improved by being an itinerant preacher, especially in that day and age? He mentions hunger, thirst, exposure to heat in summer and cold in winter, and even the thorn in his flesh was probably health-related. He mentions these in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Now, the ministry was not good for his health. In fact, a great many great ministers die quite young because the ministry is not good for your health. It is stressful. It is tiring. The, the desire to see God's people grow, to see them saved from foolishness and wickedness. I remember reading some of Machen's things and thinking, boy, wouldn't it have been nice if Machen hadn't died in his would have lived to be an old man. What great good he could have done to the church. And then I thought, you know, the ministry he had, the suffering he had to endure, the trials he endured, the persecutions he endured for his faith, all of them limited his life expectancy. Yeah. Health is not promised by being a Christian. Health is promised in eternity where we will have perfect new heavenly bodies and we won't need to worry about all the hardships and troubles that our current body gives us. I know in this congregation, pretty much all of the adults have problems and many of the children have health problems. It's not health for which we serve the Lord. Nor does he mention his wealth or financial security. See it? See, he doesn't mention his financial security, his wealth, like many of the modern ministries do. Many modern ministries have millions and millions of dollars coming in, and they're very proud of it, and they spend it all. I remember one heretical false prophet saying, God told him that unless he got a million dollars by such and such a date, he would die. And all of his followers, please send in the money and save my life. You remember the term tent-making? Have you ever heard of the word tent-making? You remember where it comes from? Paul made tents at one point to earn the money so that he could continue to working and sharing the gospel. And so he had basically a full-time job to earn money to feed himself and those who were helping him, and he was going out sharing the gospel as much as he could. It was a great hindrance to his work, and he was greatly thankful when donations from Another continent caught up with him and he had enough money to 
feed everyone and spend his time wholly focused on preaching the word of God. He never had financial security, but the Christian is not called to have that. We're not to be ashamed of living hand to mouth if that's where God has us. No, we're told by Jesus. Remember the Lord's Prayer? He teaches us how to pray, and what does he say about money? He gave us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. Daily bread. In other words, I don't need to have a couple of loaves set aside for tomorrow. Give me enough for today. I will trust you for tomorrow. I will go on serving you. I remember my pastor during a big layoff down cycle where dozens of people in the church had lost their jobs, telling us, you know, I've never seen a Christian go hungry. I've never seen a Christian starve in this country. Hope in God. Pray, give us this day our daily bread. That financial security that we often desire, that, all right, I'm set for life. I can have a nice retirement. I can relax. I have many good things. I'll store them in my, I'll tear down my small barn and build a bigger one. Remember that parable of Jesus? Having too much may not be good for us. Having our supply may be hard on us personally. Solomon said, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and denied you, and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God, Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. God doesn't promise us wealth, and Paul never speaks of, you know, look at the wealth I have in order to do my ministry. Health, wealth, and happiness, Paul never mentions happiness. He mentions joy, but not happiness. Joy in our suffering, but not happiness in our lives. When will we be happy? Oh, Lord, when will I as a Christian be happy? When will the brothers be happy and the sisters be happy? I know when. When I get to heaven. Probably isn't going to be much happiness here. There's sometimes great happiness. But more importantly, there's great joy. And I really think the, the apostles in the very beginning of the ministry had a lot to say about that. Remember when they were arrested for preaching the gospel of God in God's own temple? Acts chapter 5, they called the disciples, or called the apostles, and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Remember what they did? They left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They had joy in being beaten by the council, not because the council did right, but because it showed that they were worthy of suffering for Christ's name. If they had twisted the truth, if they said, okay, you're offended because we're saying you murdered your Messiah, we'll leave that part out of the gospel. And then we'll be okay. And they could have gone along in no beating. But they didn't. They continued to preach the gospel and they told these men, you know, you yourselves need to decide, is it right for us to obey God or man? They decided to obey God. Because they were faithful, they were true believers. And thus they were beaten, but they counted it, they considered it joyful that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name's sake. And it says that, it goes on to say, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That was Acts 5, 40 and 42, through 42. How do we react to such adversities? We are reading in our devotions at home from the Puritans, and Thomas Brooks wrote, The humble soul endeavors more to glorify God with his inflictions than how to get out of them. And that thought is certainly present in the apostles who rejoice that they're accounted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And certainly that joy is present in Paul's writings, that he is counted worthy to suffer for Christ. He's not looking for a way out of the affliction. He's looking for a way to use the affliction to glorify God. 
Think of his imprisonment in Rome the first time. Oh, he's going to be locked in prison in Rome. Well, he raised the funds so that he could support both a Roman centurion to guard him and his own home and people to feed him. And he used that as an opportunity to share the gospel. And guess what? The Jews and the pagans who usually rioted and tried to kill him and drove him out of the city, they couldn't touch him because he was a criminal, accused criminal under Roman guard. And so he used the affliction of being arrested as the grounds to have a ministry that was untouchable for a time. Paul certainly looked for ways to glorify God in all these afflictions that he suffered. He did not look for ways to get out of them. Health, wealth, and happiness in heaven. Here on earth, if you desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's just the way it is. That should be acceptable to us as believers, knowing that everything we give up to be a Christian, everything we suffer for being a Christian, all the hardships, all the adversities we suffer in Christian life will be rewarded in heaven many times over. We shouldn't fear. Also, Paul does not mention comfortable life. Paul never talks about being raised to heaven on flowery beds of ease. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. That was back in chapter two, or chapter one, verse three and four. His premise was, we are going to be afflicted, right? All who try to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Affliction will come. God will comfort us. He's not looking for a comfortable life. He's looking for the comfort that faith in God and faith in eternity gives to the believer. The Christian who gives no thought to eternity is a Christian who has lost one of the greatest comforts in our lives. More comforting than health, more comforting than financial security, more comforting than anything that can happen to us is the confidence that God is with us. God will never leave us nor forsake us. God will work all things together for good for those who are called according to his name. We know that God is there, and that is our comfort. People preaching, you know, have your best life now when you become a Christian, don't understand. And believers should not be deceived by such people. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are all people to be most pitied. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. Why? Because we're going to be persecuted in this life if we try to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus. Because this world is cursed and nothing works out the way we want it to. Nothing completely goes our way. With sweat and toil do we bring up the harvest from the ground. Fighting against the cursed nature of sin in men, the cursed destruction of the world, and it produces suburbs for us, we are not going to have our best life in this world. The believer has eternity for his best life, where there would be no stumbling blocks, no cause to sin, no suffering, no tears. Eternity of joy in Christ. The troublemakers in Corinth, these scholastics, judged Paul and his gospel as pointless and useless because they did not know God. Paul, in his first letter, wrote to them, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries, or as he now says in our passage today, as ambassadors of Christ that we read in chapter 5. Moreover, he said, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. What is faithful? While preaching the whole counsel of God without muddying it up without peddling it, without corrupting it, without twisting it, without sanitizing it for people. It is required of students that they be found faithful. With me, it's a very small thing if I should be judged by you or by any human court, Paul says. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. 
when I'm not thereby acquitted, it is the Lord who judges me, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. And he's not concerned personally with these people judging and condemning him. You might ask, so why does he labor so much to bring people into a right view of himself in his ministry if he's not worried about being judged falsely by God's enemies, the enemies of the gospel? And the answer to that is the purpose of this text. An ambassador of God in Christ Jesus is who he is, who the Christian is. When people mock, when people deceive, slander, when people try to nullify the word of God and the testimony of God and the gospel by attacking us, the messenger, the ambassador, we need to be concerned. And so he does correct them. These people who are undermining the true gospel, undermining the life that God has called us to. The enemies of God are those who are trying to obscure the gospel, trying to obscure the word of God so that men do not obey all that God has commanded, all that Christ has commanded. And Paul says, I am not one of them. I put no stumbling block in people's way. I work hard to make my ministry honorable. So even if they speak evil of me in the day of judgment, God will be glorified. But better, the people of God, stop listening to such filth. That is Paul's purpose in our section today, commending ourselves as servants of God, not for ourselves, but for God, for the gospel, for the Great Commission the duty of every Christian. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you again humbly, knowing, Lord, that we are not, like Paul, the greatest of, dis of disciples, the one who faithfully brings your word to the world, although we stumble in this in many ways, fearful of being despised, fearful of being mocked, fearful of being hated, we pray, Lord, that you would give us our fearful natures and encourage our hearts in the strength of your Son, in the strength of your Spirit, that we might be faithful to you peacefully, honestly, kindly, gently, with honor and respect. Tell people your will. Tell them what is right and wrong. Tell them how they can be saved. And tell them how your word says to live their lives. Because we know these things from your word. We are your ambassadors. We pray, Lord, your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.